Chapter Ten, Part Two of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Candace Tuttle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter Ten, Part Two. Of his belief in God, in man, in goodness, as against the pessimist outlook of his day, Gilbert, as we have seen, felt profound certitude. That his outlook was one that held him back from many fields of opportunity, he was already partly conscious. A fragment of a letter to Francis expresses this feeling. I find I cannot possibly come tonight as my Canadian uncle keeps his last night in England, in a sort of family party. And I abide in my father's house, said Our Lady of the Snows. I have just had a note from Rex, asking me, with characteristic precision, if I can produce a play in the style of Maeterlinck by 6.50 this afternoon, or words to that effect. The idea is full of humour. He remarks, as a matter of fact, that there is just a remote chance of his getting the stage society to act my play of the wild night. This opens to me a vista of quite new ambition. Why only at the stage society? I see a visionary program. The wild night. Mr. Charles Hawtree. Captain Redfeather. Mr. Penley. Olive. Miss Katie Seymour. Priest. Sir Henry Irving, Lord Orme, Mr. Arthur Roberts. I am working and must get on with my work. I do not feel any despondency about it, because I know it is good and worth doing. It is extraordinary how much more moral one is than one imagines. At school I never minded getting into a row if it were really not my fault. Similarly, I have never cared a rap for rejections or criticisms, since I had got a point of view to express which I was certain held water. Some people think it holds water, on the brain, but I don't mind. Bless them. I am afraid, darling, that this doctrine of patience is hard on you, but really it's a grand thing to think oneself right. It's what this whole age is starving for, something to suffer for and go mad and miserable over. That is the only luxury of the mind. I wish I were a convinced pro-boer, and could stare down a howling mob. But I am right about the cosmos, and Schopenhauer and company are wrong. Two interesting points in this letter are the remark about wishing to be a convinced pro-boer, which he certainly became, and the suggestion of a possible performance of the Wild Knight. Perhaps the letter was written before he had finally taken his stand. It has no dating postmark. Or perhaps it merely means that his convictions on the cosmos are more absolute than on the war. As to the Wild Knight, it was never acted, and its publication was made possible only by the generosity of Gilbert's father. For a volume of comic verse, Greybeards at Play, which appeared earlier in the same year, 1900, he could find a publisher, but serious poetry has never been easy to launch. The letter that follows has more immediate bearing on their own future. 11 Warwick Gardens, Good Friday, 1900 
as you have tabulated your questions with such alarming precision i must really endeavour to answer them categorically one how am i i am in excellent health i have an opaque cold in my head cough tempestuously and am very deaf but these things i count as mere specks showing up the general blaze of salubrity i am getting steadily better and i don't mind how slowly as for my spirits a cold never affects them for i have plenty to do and think about indoors one or two little literary schemes trifles doubtless claim my attention two am i going away at easter the sarcastic might think it a characteristic answer but i can only reply that i had banished the matter from my mind a vague problem of the remote future until you asked it but since this is easter and we are not gone away i suppose we are not going away three i will meet you at euston on tuesday evening though hell itself should gape and bid me stop at home four i am not sure whether a review on crivelli's art is out this week i am going to look five alas i have not been to nut there are good excuses but they are not the real ones i will write to him now yes now six does my hair want cutting my hair seems pretty happy you are the only person who seems to have any fixed theory on this for all i know it may be at that fugitive perfection which has moved you to enthusiasm three minutes after this perfection i understand a horrible degeneration sets in the hair becomes too long the figure disreputable and profligate and the individual is unrecognized by all his friends it is he that wants cutting then not his hair seven as to shirt links studs and laces i glitter from head to foot with them eight i have had a few skirmishes with nollies but not the general engagement when this comes off you shall have news from our correspondent nollies was francis's brother nine i have got a really important job in reviewing the life of ruskin for the speaker as i have precisely seventy-three theories about ruskin it will be brilliant and condensed i am also reviewing the life of the kendalls a book on the renaissance and one on Correggio for the bookman. 10. How far is it to Babylon? Babylon, I am firmly convinced, is just round the corner. If one could only be certain which corner. This conviction is the salt of my life. 11. Really and truly, I see no reason why we should not be married in April, if not before. I have been making some money calculations with the kind assistance of Rex, and as far as I can see, we could live in the country, on quite a small amount of regular literary work. P.S. Forgot the last question. 12. Oddly enough, I was writing a poem. We'll send it to you. Gilbert's engagement had given him the impetus to earn more, but he was always entirely unpractical. His salary at Fisher Unwin's had been negligible, and he was not making much yet by the journalism which was now his only source of income. The repeated promise to write to Nutt is very characteristic, for Nutt was the manager of the solitary publisher who was at the moment prepared to put a book of Gilbert's on the market at his own risk. Although they did not manage to get married this year, 
By the end of it, he was becoming well-known. The articles in the speaker, especially, were attracting attention, and Greybeards at Play had a considerable success. This, the first of Gilbert's books to be published, is a curiosity. It is made up of three incredibly witty satirical poems, The Oneness of the Philosopher with Nature, The Dangers of Attending Altruism on the High Seas, and The Disastrous Spread of Aestheticism in All Classes. The illustrations, drawn by himself, are as witty as the verses. By the beginning of 1901, his work was being sought for by other liberal periodicals, and he was writing regularly for the Daily News. The following letter to Francis bears the postmark February 8, 1901. Somewhere in the Arabian Nights, or some such place, there is a story of a man who was Emperor of the Indies for one day. I am rather in the position of that person, for I am editor of the speaker for one day. Hammond is unwell, and Hurst has gone to dine with John Morley, so the latter asked me to see the paper through for this number. Hence this note-paper, and the great hurry and brevity, which I fear must characterize this letter. There are a few minor amusing things, however, that I have a moment to mention. 1. The Daily News have sent me a huge mass of books to review, which block up the front hall. A study of Swinburne, a book on Kipling, the last Richard Le Gallienne, all very interesting. See if I don't do some whacking articles, all about the stars and the moon and the creation of Adam and that sort of thing. I really think I could work a revolution in daily paper, writing by the introduction of poetical prose. 2. Among other books that I have to review came, all unsolicited, a book by your old friend Schofield. Ha, ha, ha! It's about the formation of character, or some of those low and beastly amusements. I think of introducing parts of my comic opera of the PNEU into the articles. 3. Another rather funny thing is the way in which my name is being spread about. Belloc declares that everyone says to him, who discovered Chesterton? And that he always replies, The genius Oldershaw. This may be a trifle Gallic, but Hammond has shown me more than one letter from Cambridge Dons and such people, demanding the identity of G.K.C. in a quite violent tone. They excuse themselves by offensive phrases in which the word brilliant occurs, but I shouldn't wonder if there was a thick stick somewhere at the back of it. Belloc, by the way, has revealed another side of his extraordinary mind. He seems to have taken our marriage much to heart, for he talks to me no longer about French Jacobins and medieval saints, but entirely about the cheapest flats and furniture, on which, as on the others, he is a mine of information, assuring me paternally that it's the carpet that does you. I should think this fatherly tone would amuse you. Now I must leave off, for the pages have come up to be seen through the press. Greybeards at Play, its author never took very seriously. It was not included in his collected poems, and he does not even mention it in his autobiography. He attached a great deal more importance to The Wild Knight and other poems. It was a volume of some fifty poems, many of which had already appeared in The Outlook and The Speaker. It was published in 1900, and produced a crop of enthusiastic reviews, 
and more and more people began to ask one another, who is G.K. Chesterton? One reviewer wrote, if it were not for the haunting fear of losing a humorist, we should welcome the author of The Wild Knight to a high place among the poets. Another spoke of the curious intensity of the volume. Among those who were less pleased was John Davidson, on whom the book had been fathered by one reviewer, and who denied responsibility for such frantic rubbish, and also a reverent reviewer who complained, It is scattered all over with the name of God. To Francis, Gilbert wrote, I have been taken to see Mrs. Maynell, poet and essayist, who is enthusiastic about the wild night and is lending it to all her friends. Last night I went to Mrs. Cox's book party. My costume was a great success. Everyone wrestled with it. Only one person guessed it, and the rest admitted that it was quite fair and simple. It consisted of wearing on the lapel of my dress coat the following letters, U-U-N-S-I-J. Perhaps you would like to work this out all by yourself. But no, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. The book I represented was The Letters of Junius. Mrs. Maynell never came to know Gilbert well, and her daughter says in the biography that her mother realized his critical approval, admiration would be a better word, of her own work only by reading his essays. But he once wrote an introduction for a book of hers, and her admiration of him would break out frequently in amusing exclamations. I hope the papers are nice to my Chesterton. He is mine much more, really, than Belloc's. If I had been a man and large, I should have been Chesterton. Brimley Johnson, who was to have been Gilbert's brother-in-law, sent the wild knight to Rudyard Kipling. His reply is amusing and also touching, for Mr. Johnson was clearly pouring out, in interest in Gilbert's career, and in forwarding his marriage with Francis, the affections that might merely have been frozen by Gertrude's death. The Elms, Roddingdean, November 28th. Dear Mr. Johnson, Many thanks for the wild night. Of course I knew some of the poems before, notably the donkey, which stuck in my mind at the time I read it. I agree with you that there is any amount of promise in the work, and I think marriage will teach him a good deal, too. It will be curious to see how he'll develop in a few years. We all begin with arranging and elaborating all the heavens and hells and stars and tragedies we can lay our poetic hands on. Later we see folk, just common people, under the heavens. Meantime, I wish him all the happiness that there can be, and for yourself, such comfort as men say time brings after loss. It's apt to be a weary while coming, but one goes the right way to get it if one interests oneself in the happiness of other folk. Even though the sight of happiness is like a knife turning in a wound. Yours sincerely, Rudyard Kipling. P.S. Merely as a matter of loathsome detail, Chesterton has a bad attack of Orioles. They are spotted all over the book. I think everyone is bound in each book to employ unconsciously some pet word, but that was Rossetti's. Likewise, I notice wan waste and many wands and things that catch and cling. He is too good not to be jolted out of that. What do you say to a severe course of Walt Whitman? 
or will marriage make him see people? Gilbert had already taken both prescriptions, Walt Whitman and folk, just common people under the heavens. Many years later, James Agate wrote in Thursdays and Fridays. Unlike some other serious thinkers, Chesterton understood his fellow men. The woes of a jockey were as familiar to him as the worries of a judge. Perhaps some slight echoes of Swinburne did remain in this collection. Many earlier poems exist in the Swinburne manner, not of thought, but of expression. Gilbert left an absolute command that these should never be published. All Englishmen were stricken by the death of Queen Victoria. Mr. Summers Cox, who had come to know Gilbert through his intimacy with Belloc, remembers that he wept when he heard of it. The tears may also be heard in a letter to Francis. Today the Queen was buried. I did not see the procession, first because I had an appointment with Hammond, of which more anon, and secondly, because I think I felt the matter too genuinely. I like a crowd when I am triumphant or excited, for a crowd is the only thing that can cheer, as much as a cock is the only thing that can crow. Can anything be more absurd than the idea of a man cheering alone in his back bedroom? But I think that reverence is better expressed by one man than a million. There is something unnatural and impossible, even grotesque, in the idea of a vast crowd of human beings all assuming an air of delicacy. All the same, my dear, this is a great and serious hour, and it is felt so completely by all England that I cannot deny the enduring wish I have, quite apart from certain more private sentiments, that the noblest Englishwoman I have ever known was here with me to renew, as I do, private vows of a very real character, to do my best for this country of mine, which I love with a love passing the love of Jingo's. It is sometimes easy to give one's country blood, and easier to give her money. Sometimes the hardest thing of all is to give her truth. I am writing an article on the good friend who is dead. I hope particularly that you will like it. The one I really like so far is Bellocks and the Speaker. I had, as I said, many things to say, but owing to the hour and a certain fatigue and idiocy in myself, I have only space for the most important. Hammond sent for me today and asked me seriously if I would help him in writing a book on Fox, sharing work, fame, and profits. I told him that I had no special talent for research. He replied that he had no talent for literary form. I then said that I would be delighted to give him such assistance, as I honestly thought valuable enough for him to split his profits for, that I thought I could give him such assistance in the matter of picturesqueness and plan of idea, more especially as Fox was a great hero of mine, and the philosophy of his life involves the whole philosophy of the revolution and of the love of mankind. We arranged that we would make a preliminary examination of the Fox record, and then decide. Three more letters, two to Francis, one to his mother, complete the outline of this eventful period. He was now determined to get married quickly. For the first time, and entirely without rancor, he realized the inevitable competition in the world of journalism. The struggle for success meant men fighting one another. Other journalists were fighting him. 
but truly enough though with a rare dispassionateness he realized that this meant a need for daily bread and others similar to his own eleven warwick gardens w postmarked february nineteenth nineteen o one i hope that in your own beautiful kindness you will be indulgent just at this time if i only write rough letters or postcards i am for the first time in my life thoroughly worried and i find it a rather exciting and not entirely unpleasant sensation but everything depends just now not only on my sticking hard to work and doing a lot of my very best but on my thinking about it keeping wide awake to the turn of the market being ready to do things not in half a week but in half an hour getting the feelings and tendencies of other men and generally living in work i am going to see layman tomorrow and many things may come of it i cannot express to you what it is to feel the grip of the great wheel of real life on you for the first time for the first time i know what is meant by the word enemies men who deliberately dislike you and oppose your career and the funny thing is that i don't dislike them at all poor devils very likely they want to be married in june too i am a socialist but i love this fierce old world and am beginning to find a beauty in making money in moderation as in making statues always through my head one tune and words of kipling set to it they passed one resolution your subcommittee believe you can lighten the curse of adam when you've lightened the curse of eve until we are built like angels with hammer and chisel and pen we'll work for ourselves and a woman forever and ever amen 11 warwick gardens w postmark march 4 1901 i have delayed this letter in a scandalous manner because i hoped i might have the arrangements with the daily news to tell you as that is again put off i must tell you later the following however are grounds on which i believe everything will turn out right this year it is arithmetic the speaker has hitherto paid me seventy pounds a year that is six pounds a month it has now raised it to ten pounds a month which makes one hundred twenty pounds a year moreover they encourage me to write as much as i like in the paper so that assuming that i do something extra poem note leader twice a month or every other number which i can easily do that brings us to nearly a hundred and fifty pounds a year so much for the speaker now for the daily news both certainties and probabilities hammond to whom you will favour me by being eternally grateful pushed me so strongly with layman for the post of manager of the literary page that it is most probable that i shall get it if i do hammond thinks they couldn't give me less than two hundred pounds a year so that if this turns out right we have three hundred fifty pounds say without any aid from bookmen books magazine articles or stories let us however put this chance entirely on one side and suppose that they can give me nothing but regular work on the daily news i have just started a set of popular fighting articles on literature in the daily news called the wars of literature they will appear at least twice a week often three times for each of these i am paid about a guinea and a half this makes about three pounds a week 
which is 144 pounds a year. Thus, with only the present certainties of speaker and daily news, we have 264 pounds a year, or very likely, with extra speaker items, 288 pounds, close on 300 pounds. This again may be reinforced by all sorts of miscellaneous work, which I shall get now my name is getting known, magazine articles, helping editors or publishers, reading manuscripts, and so on. In all these calculations, I have kept deliberately under the figures, not over them, so that I don't think I have failed altogether to bring my promise within reasonable distance of fact already. Bellock suggested that I should write for the pilot, and as he is on it, he will probably get me some work. Hammond has become leader-writer on the Echo, and will probably get me some reviewing on that. And between ourselves, to turn with intense relief from all this egotism, Hammond and I have a little scheme on hand for getting Oldershaw a kind of editorial place on the Echo, where they want a brisk but cultivated man of the world. I think we can bring it off. It is a good place for an ambitious young man. It would give me more happiness than I can say, while I am building my own house of peace, to do something for the man who did so much in giving me my reason for it. For well thou knowest, O God most wise, how good on earth was his gift to me. Shall this be a little thing in thine eyes that is greater in mine than the whole great sea? I am afraid that this is a very dull letter. But you know what I am. I can be practical, but only deliberately, by fixing my mind on a thing. In this letter I sum up my last month's thinking about money resources. I haven't given a thought yet to the application and distribution of them in rent, furniture, etc. When I have done thinking about that, you will get another dull letter. I can keep ten poems and twenty theories in my head at once, but I can only think of one practical thing at a time. The only conclusion of this letter is that on any calculation whatever we ought to have three hundred pounds a year, and be on the road to four in a little while. With this before you, I dare say you, who are more practical than I, could speculate and suggest a little as to the form of living and expenditure. Gilbert's mother, perhaps, needed more convincing. The letter to her has no postmark, but the three hundred pounds a year has grown to almost five hundred pounds, and a careful economy is promised. Mrs. Barnes, The Orchards, Burley Hants My dearest mother, thank you very much for your two letters. If you get back to Kensington before me, I shall return on Thursday night. I find I work here very well. Would you mind sending on any letters? You might send on the check, though that is not necessary. There is a subject we have touched on once or twice that I want to talk to you about, for I am very much worried in my mind as to whether you will disapprove of a decision I have been coming to with a very earnest belief that I am seeking to do the right thing. I have just had information that my screw from the speaker will be yet further increased from a hundred twenty pounds a year to a hundred fifty pounds, or, if I do the full amount I can, a hundred ninety pounds a year. I have also had a request from the Daily News to do two columns a week regularly, which is rather over a hundred pounds a year, besides other book reviews. 
My other sources of income, which should bring the amount up to nearly £150 more at any rate, I will speak of in a moment. There is something, as I say, that is distressing me a great deal. I believe I said about a year ago that I hoped to get married in a year if I had money enough. I fancy you took it rather as a joke. I was not so certain about it myself then. I have, however, been coming very seriously to the conclusion that if I pull off one more affair, a favorable arrangement with Reynolds' newspaper, whose editor wants to see me at the end of this week, I shall, unless you disapprove, make a dash for it this year. When I mentioned the matter a short time ago, you said, if I remember right, that you did not think I ought to marry under four hundred pounds or five hundred pounds a year. I was moved to go into the matter thoroughly then and there, but as it happened, I knew I had one or two bargains just coming, of which would bring me nearer to the standard you named, so I thought I would let it stand over till I could actually quote them. Believe me, my dearest mother, I am not considering this affair wildly or ignorantly. I have been doing nothing but sums in my head for the last months. This is how matters stand. The speaker editor says they will take as much as I like to write. If I write my maximum, I get £192 a year from them. From the daily news, even if I do not get the post on the staff which was half promised to me, I shall get at least £100 a year, with a good deal over for reviews outside the wars of literature. That makes nearly £300. With the Manchester Sunday Chronicle, I have just made a bargain by which I shall get £72 a year. This makes £370 a year altogether. The matter now, I think, largely depends on Reynolds' paper. If I do, as is contemplated, weekly articles and thumbnail sketches, they cannot give me less than £100 a year. This would bring the whole to £470 a year, or within £30 of your standard. Of course I know quite well that this is not like talking of an income from a business or a certain investment, but we should live a long way within this income if we took a very cheap flat, even a workman's flat if necessary, had a woman in to do the laborious daily work, and for the rest waited on ourselves, as many people I know do in cheap flats. Moreover, journalism has its ups as well as downs, and I, I can fairly say, am on the upward wave. Without vanity, and in a purely business-like spirit, I may say that my work is talked about a great deal. It is at least a remarkable fact that every one of the papers I write for, as detailed above, came to me and asked me to do the work for them. From the Daily News down to the Manchester Sunday Chronicle. I have, as I say, what seems to me a sufficient income for a start. That I shall have as good and better, I am as certain as that I sit here. I know the clockwork of these papers, and among one set of them, I might almost say that I am becoming the fashion. Do not, please, think that I am entertaining this idea without realizing that I shall have to start in a very serious and economical spirit. I have worked it out, and I am sure we could live well within the above calculations, and leave a good margin. I make all these prosaic statements because I want you to understand that I know the risks I think of running. 
but it is not any practical question that is distressing me. On that I think I see my way. But I am terribly worried, for fear you should be angry or sorry about all this. I am only kept in hope by the remembrance that I had the same fear when I told you of my engagement, and that you dispelled it with a directness and generosity that I shall not forget. I think, my dear mother, that we have always understood each other, really. We are neither of us very demonstrative. We come of some queer stock, that can always say least, when it means most. But I do think you can trust me, when I say that I think a thing really right, and equally honestly, admit that I can hardly explain why. To explain why I know it is right, would be to communicate the incommunicable, and speak of delicate and sacred things in bald words. The most I can say is that I know Frances like the back of my hand, and can tell without a word from her that she has never recovered from a wound, and that there is only one kind of peace that will heal it. I have tried to explain myself in this letter. I can do it better in a letter somehow, but I do not think I have done it very successfully. However, with you it does not matter, and it never will matter, how my thoughts come tumbling out. You at least have always understood what I meant. Always, your loving son, Gilbert. End of chapter 10, part 2. Recording by Candace Tuttle.